0: much. Um, right, hi everybody, can, can you all hear me at the back? Perfect, thank you. Okay, so the 1956 science fiction film Forbidden Planet, that's where I wanted to start and that's where I've taken the title for today's keynote. It was one of the defining feature uh, sci-fi films of the 1950s. Loosely based on The Tempest, the story relocates Shakespeare's late play to a remote planet called Altair Four. Prospero Miranda, a recast as Dr. Morbius uh, and his daughter, Altera, who we can see here. Robbie was the most expensive prop ever made at the time. He actually cost about 7% of the entire film budget. And his mechanised alterity was accompanied by a groundbreaking soundtrack of futuristic sci-fi sound effects inspired by Norbert Wiener's uh, cybernetics. Early in the film then, Robbie is described as a housewife's dream and simply a tool. He cooks, manufacturing food from raw materials, synthesising ingredients using a chemical laboratory, conveniently located inside his robotic stomach. He serves drinks, distils bourbon, acts as a butler, and he even rustles up slinky evening gowns for Alta. He became so popular, um, he was later reused by MGM in a whole number of films, um, The Invisible Boy, The Adams Family, The Twilight Zone, and perhaps my favourite and least probable, uh, an episode of Columbo. Um, uh, And I think also that justified this enormous budget that MGM had uh, spent creating him. So he's arguably the most identifiable robot character in science fiction since Fritz Lang's Maria, and before Star Wars, R2-D2 and C-3PO. But unlike uh, later um, um, robots featured in films like The Running Man, Robocop and Total Recall, Um, We should remember that, uh, and also unlike the poster, which is entirely misleading, he's not the antagonist, he's mainly a butler and he certainly (laughs) doesn't whisk um, semi-clad ladies off into the um, alien landscape. Um, We should remember that he's really a benign robotic figure. Later on when he's uh, featured again in The Invisible Boy, he's a kind of mechanical friend to this young boy. Uh, And we can say perhaps then that this benign um, image corresponds to post-war American optimism about technological innovation, about the rising prosperity of the middle classes whose near future visions of automation uh, removed the drudgery from domestic life. Um, So today I'd like to consider this so-called housewife's dream of full automation and the associated problem of labour. We're currently living through a seismic shift in techno-capitalism with its concomitant and drastic revolutionising of the labour market. Automated technologies and artificial intelligence are able to perform more tasks than ever before. We have self-driving cars, computerised manufacturing, fully automated warehouses, and packing or fulfilment centres. Amazon's just walk-out technology has removed entirely the need for any shop assistance beyond um, simply self-service checkouts and so the need for human labour or intervention becomes um, almost obsolete. Meanwhile, even white-collar jobs like legal services and AI-assisted operations in hospitals um, are being replaced by machinery. So this then is a revolution in productive relations and it affects all of us. A recent report from the Office for National Statistics reveals that in the UK, 1.5 million workers are at high risk of losing their jobs to automation in the coming decades. And, of course, this is unevenly distributed, um, as Katie mentioned in the introduction. Even with employment, workers are increasingly trapped in in in-work poverty. Um, More than half of the people living in the UK in 2016 in poverty actually came from households where at least one member was in employment. So the future of work looks increasingly uncertain, as rampant technological innovation delivers um, more inequality, unevenly distributed. The racialization of technology is another significant barrier to equality, with AI development privileging whiteness, men, and accumulated capital, as Stephanie Dinkins writes in the um, current issue of the ASAP journal. She says, unless people of color become authors, testers, and watchdogs of the creation of AI systems, hundreds of years of skewed history, systemic discriminations, and racial myths will perpetuate in these new technologies. So are we going to remain the techno-serfs at the mercy of algorithmic computational capitalism with its obeisance to money, power and all the privileges of whiteness, maleness, heteronormativity and ableism that undergirds such power? Or can we actually harness these technologies to liberate ourselves from the drudgery of routine, menial and even highly skilled labour? Ursula Hughes writes in an important new study that's just come out uh, titled Labour in Contemporary Capitalism, and I quote, As the second decade of the 21st century draws to a close, the media are abuzz with sharply polarized debates about the future of work. Utopian visions of a post-capitalist world in which all the drudgery will be carried out by machines and people are free to enjoy a life of leisure and creativity, jostle with dark dystopian views of a future society in which the majority of the population is reduced to precarious penury under the all-seeing gaze of a panoptic authority. Robbie the robot performs, then, the domestic labour traditionally assigned to subordinated female labour. Um, But his gender is fairly ambiguous in some odd ways. He's given, for example, the deep-pitched voice, unmistakably, of a man. When he's asked about his gender, uh, he replies, in my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. So the technological futurism embodied by his uh, sleek metallic casing The plexiglass-domed head and flashing electronic brain circuitry speaks, I think, of a macho techno-capitalist dream of robotic sophistication. And yet his humanoid demeanour suggests the gender ambiguity of this housewife's dream, an early signifier, perhaps, of Donna Haraway's feminist and simultaneously post-humanist cyborg, which pulls gender boundaries apart. So automation, as I'm going to, to argue today, and as I hope many of you will be arguing throughout the next three days, is inescapably a feminist issue. Working women are twice as likely to lose their jobs to the technology as their male colleagues. Since the 1970s, Marxist feminists have focused their analyses on the gender division of labor and its denigration of the domestic sphere, which positions women outside of economic production. So we need to ask, can automation liberate women from this kind of work? And this takes us back a little bit to 1940, and the film uh, Leave it to Rollo. It's an information film. I'm just gonna have to skip this advert. Don't get too excited. Okay, here we go. I'll just play about 20 seconds. there miss you see the heterodynes are feeding back into the stimulus reaction activators causing non-snaps of the motor control resistor units oh that's good oh lady that's bad but your regenerated circuits are tuned asynchronously and that causes concatenation in the intermediate amplifiers well that's bad isn't it no that's good from now on i don't think there'll be the slightest trouble with your robot your domestic problems are completely solved well, thank you very much. And perfectly all right. And if there's anything else you want to know about your robot, don't hesitate to give us a ring. Good day. And then in later scenes we see the robot, It um, tried to take the mail from the mail delivery man, terrorising him, screaming and kind of running off into the distance. But I think what I really um, enjoyed, I guess, about this clip, the dated nature of it, is this is supposed to liberate women from the drudgery of housework. And actually, we see the woman featured putting her feet up and kind of reading women's gossip magazines. She's not liberated into the public sphere. She's not liberated into what we might argue to be meaningful activities beyond the home. Um, And furthermore, the... (laughs) The way in which the technology is explained to her in this incredibly patronising kind of way, she's too stupid a woman to understand how the robot even works and which buttons to press. I think this tells us uh, and encapsulates a lot of the kind of underlying and embedded problems to do with gender and automated technologies. In her influential study More Work for Mother, The Ironies of Household Technology from 1983, Ruth Schwartz-Cohen described how, uh, precisely this problem, that automated domestic technologies haven't liberated women's time despite removing them from the drudgery of heavy work. Instead, she suggests, the history shows shows us that washing machines, vacuum cleaners, dishwashers and so on, have simply raised societal expectations that now clothes, carpets and dishes have to be ever more clean, ever more luxurious and elaborate, And so the time spent undertaking household chores remains actually constant despite the technologies invented. I think this reveals two important things then for our consideration of automated productive futures uh, and their impact on labour and free time. Uh, Firstly, that simply automating the hard work in and of itself does not address underlying economic and gender inequalities that comprise the division of labour. So men, it seems, can be liberated from the chores of the household, but women are simply required to find more tasks with which to fill their time. And secondly, confusingly label one, but actually number two, um, there's a persistent cultural obfuscation here that insists on the separation of the home and the workplace, the private and the public sphere, home seen then as a refuge from industrialisation and economic competition. When in fact, as Schwarz-Cohen masterfully demonstrates, in reality she says kitchens are as much a locus for industrialised work as factories and coal mines and washing machines and microwave ovens are as much a product of industrialisation as are automobiles and pocket calculators. I want to think about this question of whether automation will help achieve gender parity. Um, Science fiction uh, has a long history of gendering its um, productive futurities through imagining different kinds of woman as machine. I mentioned a moment ago Fritz Lang's robot Maria, um, actually Thea von Harbo's original text adapted by her husband Fritz Lang, who gets all the credit. Um, So, you know, there are numerous examples. C. L. Moore uh, wrote a a novella, No Woman Born in 1944. Um, Alice Sheldon, uh, James Tiptree Jr.'s uh, short story, The Girl Who Was Plugged In, um, The Women of um, Cyberpunk, and so on. They're explicitly gendered, and yet they're also stripped of their humanity and rendered mechanical and servile. I'm not going to go into these today. That's actually a a kind of separate uh, topic and, uh, and, and something that I hope to look at separately as well. Um, But really what I want to focus on then is this idea that without the corresponding vision of economic and productive transformation, simply removing the problem of hard work by displacing it into automated futurities doesn't actually address the corresponding questions about the meaning, the dignity and the value of work, the relationship between labour and leisure, the quality of so-called free time, and the persistent gender inequality which finds ever more ways to remove women from wage work and into an invisibilized realm of undervalued labor. Um, a good place, I think, to start thinking about some of these uh, difficult social and economic questions is Ursula Le Guin's influential 1974 novel, The Dispossessed. Le Guin's anarcho-utopian moon world of Inaris was chosen by Tom Moylan as one of his key examples of the critical utopia in his 1986 study, Demand the Impossible. Um, The novel refuses to present utopia as some kind of Edenic post-scarcity vision of abundance and plenty which we tend to associate with utopian narratives. As Moylan puts it, quote, it's as though Le Guin combined the Oklahoma Dust Bowl of the 1930s with the ecology of the high desert of the southwest and set up a utopia to scratch out its existence within this unpastoral environment. So it might be a utopia, but it's certainly not a classical land of cocaine style vision of plenty and abundance. Um, what we might refer to as the post-classical utopianism of this novel um, is also central, not just to this harsh moon world environment, but to the treatment of work in the text. And this quotation that I picked out for you is, is gonna be central to our thoughts about work today. It is useless work uh, that darkens the heart. The delight of the nursing mother, of the scholar, of the successful hunter, of the good cook, of the skillful maker, of anyone doing needed work and doing it well. This durable joy is perhaps the de- deepest source of human affection and of sociality as a whole. So the key phrase here then is needed work, work that is needed by others, by the collective, by society as a whole, needed and therefore valued, contributing to social production and reproduction. And so this idea of needed, useful and fulfilling work is going to be central to uh, my lecture today. Um, Science fiction, to rephrase Claude Levi-Strauss's quip about animals, is good to think with. Um, (laughs) Exhibit A. I thought I had two copies of Le Guin's The Dispossessed on my desk, and then I looked down and realised that one of them was Herbert Marcuse's Eros and Civilization*. The 1987 uh, arc paperback of this 1958 critical theory classic um, is almost exactly the same colour and style as the 2002 Golant's SF Masterworks um, paperback edition that I have of The Dispossessed. Um, Science fiction then can visualise entire worlds in stunning detail, at bewilderingly epic, geographical, cosmological and historical scales. When it comes to questions of political philosophy, science fiction has shown us its usefulness as an imaginative tool. Indeed, the early utopian socialist narratives drew an astonishing number of people to the cause of socialism, precisely because they were novels and not political pamphlets. So Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward from 1888, for example, was so influential, historians later declared only Marx's Das Kapital has done more to shape the thought and action of the world. What I'm going to do uh, in this lecture then is draw on just a select number of science fiction texts. Um, I've never done this kind of structure for a talk before, I'm not going to go through kind of schematically subsection by subsection, but rather I want to work through a problem. Uh, and I think science fiction, alongside a number of literatures um, in uh, sociology and political theory and so on, can help us to do this. Weirdly, um, although there are um, uh, many different areas looking at the problem of work, it's, it's almost overwhelming, if I'm honest. Very few of these academic fields actually seem to talk to each other or to cross disciplines. Um, some of the ones that I've been looking at uh, in preparation for today would include Marxist uh, revolutionary theory, what's exhaustively referred to as the sociology of work, although the main problem here, looking at a sociologist in the front row, this is going to be awkward. Yeah, I agree with with you. you. The sociology of work, as far as I can make out, only looks at paid work and almost entirely ignores unpaid work, so that's not helpful. Um, I also took a brief foray into, obviously, feminist theory, ethical and political philosophy, liberal egalitarian theories of justice, kids. I know how to spend my Fridays. Uh, Time use studies and time use data, which is really bewildering and empirical and really quite dull. Temporality studies, more philosophical here. And then more recently, which I think is really relevant to the conference, discussions within anti-productivist and anti-work circles. So a whole range of new titles coming out, some of which are in the bibliography provided in the call for papers, um, in kind of leftist, uh, communist um, thinking. These latter then are a direct response to our current employment crisis and the next wave of automation which promises to wipe out entire industries and fell ever more people into unemployment. So automation then, I think it requires new or perhaps old ways of thinking about work, about our place in society and about the social construction of meaningful activity that needed work, (coughs) Liguin described. As uh, Nick Snernack and Alex Williams write in uh, Inventing the Future from 2015, the 21st century is producing the resources by which a very different political and economic system could be achieved. Um, They argue then that we've reached a technological uh, horizon in which those kind of late 19th century utopian socialist dreams of automated futures liberating us into free time of leisure and creativity have actually finally become nearly possible. Um, particularly because of um, things like open source, commoning of in- information with copyleft licences, meaning that we can freely, freely share information, um, also because of sophisticated computer simulations enabling economic, planic, uh, sorry, panic? Uh, planning. economic planning and rationalisation of the kind that um, Edward Bellamy would have recognised as inherently utopian, although oddly it doesn't have as many pneumatic tubes as we might like. So throughout the lecture today, then, I'm going to think about how science fiction texts that deal with automation um, and what kind of futures they might liberate us into. I'm thinking here about the technologies and particularly about the meaning of work more than the robots, the androids, the cyborgian um, post-humans as such. Uh, I'm not thinking about the singularity, although maybe you are. Okay, so the definitional problem of work. Science fictions that imagine the automated future are by definition interested not only in productive forces and relations, but also the question of how we spend our time. And this is something uh, that, as I'll come on to shortly, is um, central to Marx's writings about capitalist production and the extraction of surplus value, with its concomitant immiseration of the working class. But it's also picked up in various different strands of utopian thinking from the celebration of craft making in arts and crafts socialist thinking to the Frankfurt School's recalibration of Freudian instinctual theory to more recent anti-work discourse uh, in response to um, the crisis of employment and austerity. And between and among all of these variant different positions about work is the question what does work actually mean and what does not working actually mean? Uh, What do we understand by free time uh, and what do we do once we have it? How would we spend it? Returning to um, Le Guin's The Dispossessed, the word for work in the anoresti language of Pravik is actually the same as the word for play. Pravik uses a separate word for drudgery called *klegich*, uh, and this uh, differentiates menial and unfulfilling work from the kind of creative uh, labour we might think of as playful. Okay, so so far Le Guin has indicated then we have a utopian liberation of meaningful, of needed work from drudgery or toil, and that this would signify a properly utopian transformation of productive relations. But actually, as, as this quotation shows us if we look a bit closer, it goes even further than this, because Klegich, the drudgery, um, is something that people are signing up in their droves to do on anaris. Uh, they never had to call for volunteers. Most of the work was so boring it was not called work, it was called Kleggich. Um, and it included things like um, manning old interplanetary ships, repairing networks, maintaining radar and um, radio telescopic scans, working in lonesome places, uh, doing dull duty, and so on. We're even told later that dirty work, such as garbage collecting, grave digging, mercury mining and sewage processing, is willingly performed by every citizen one day in each decade. So I think, as the dispossessed shows us, work can mean a number of different things. It could be fulfilling creative labour. Shevek's work in theoretical and experimental physics is fulfilling its creative. It can also mean work that, no matter how menial and hard, even the cleggage is actually still valued and is still needed. Um, So ploughing a field or laying a pipe perhaps, Um, even the simple brute drudgery. Hannah Arendt dedicates a substantial portion of the human condition into working through overlapping ideas of uh, work and their cultural heritage. I, I really don't have time to go into this but the chapter on work is absolutely fascinating, complicated, it goes back into the kind of ancient Greek division of labor, how it changes in the medieval period um, and so on. Um, But the point about the human condition I think is relevant here. She writes, the perfect elimination of the pain and effort of labor would not only rob biological life of its most natural pleasures, but deprive the specifically human life of its very liveliness and vitality. The human condition is such that pain and effort are not just symptoms which can be removed without changing life itself, they are rather the modes in which life itself, uh, together with the necessity to which it is bound, makes itself felt. For mortals, the easy life of the gods would be a lifeless life. So, we need work, Arendt suggests, we can't just make the machines do it. Her argument about the human condition confirms that a certain amount of toil must be endured. It's an inescapable rhythmic component of the biological life cycle in which pain and the effort of labor also gives us vitality, liveliness, natural pleasures. An early Ukrainian novella which uh, thinks about this idea is Anna Bowman Dodd's novella um, the Republic of the Future or Socialism a Reality, um, 1887. I would not describe this as feminist I would describe it as confusing on the subject of women's liberation, Um, and I'm annoyed that it takes up a a section of this lecture because it's not great, but it is really relevant to what we're talking about. Published in the same year as the Haymarket (coughs) Riot, Dodd's anti-socialist tract imagines a fully automated uh, future visited by a Swedish capitalist named Wolfgang, who marvels at its technological innovations in hyperbolic letters written to a friend back home. He arrives at this strange socialistic society by pneumatic transportation cables, of course he does, under the sea, and marvels uh, when he first gets there an automated hotel with its smart elevator and self-operating taps. As he says, I've been in this hotel for mortal days. I've eaten three substantial meals a day, have been fairly comfortable, and yet have not seen a single human creature. The whole establishment apparently is run by machinery. In this world, then, all degrading and menial labor is automated, um, full automation, that housewife's dream, has released women into public life. One sees them everywhere, he complains, in all the public offices, as heads of departments, as government clerks, officials, engineers, machinists, aeronauts, tax collectors, filling, in fact, every office and vocation in civil, political, and social life. So free from having to do the cooking, the cleaning, the sewing, the bed making, Women um, simply now have to manage, they still manage the machines, they're still there overseeing everything being cleaned, Um, but then it doesn't take very much time and so with the rest of their time they're able to enter into civil life. Um, Having satisfactorily emancipated themselves from the bondage of domestic drudgery, we are told, women found one obstacle still in their path to complete and co-equal man freedom. Man freedom, not freedom, man freedom. Uh, there still remained the children to be taken care of and brought up. So the answer, obviously, is to ban motherhood um, through the legislature. Um, Children are then appropriated um, by the state at birth. There is no more family life. So, I mean, it all sounds pretty utopian at the start, but it quickly um, disintegrates as he travels around the supposedly utopian kingdom. Wolfgang is clearly disgusted by... uh, I mean, he's a capitalist, uh, we shouldn't forget by the bleak uniformity of standard issue housing, the lack of architectural detail, um, the lack of kind of variation. Uh, as you can see from these two quotations then, he's, uh, he's impressed by the profound melancholy, which appears to have taken possession of this people. Uh, they seem sunk in a torpor of dejection and settled apathy. Um, it's so universal, uh, he says, they play far more languidly than they work. Um, that that their physiognomy has changed um, and that they all look very kind of flaccid and bored. The original hope and belief of the founders of socialism was that if the people, this is really the crucial bit, that's why I put it in bold, if the people could only be given sufficient leisure, the whole race would be lifted to an extraordinary plane of perfection. So if only we could have more time, everything would be fine. Uh, But as we see in uh, Bowman Dodd's Uh, sort of dystopia, I guess. Uh, Mainly people go to the gym, uh, and then they sort of loaf about in the parks and whatnot. The people, uh, Wolfgang surmises, are dying for want of work, downright hard work. So... Do we have confirmation in this text, then, that Hannah Arendt's claim that we have an inescapable human condition, that our deep instinctual need for for work, for pain, for toil, is actually true, and that liberating us would only liberate us into the lifeless life of uh, the gods? I mean, we might do, but there's a a whole bunch of context. Uh, There's Anna Bowman Dodd's politics that we need to address, perhaps. For a writer of this period, there are some starkly and uh, ironically anti-feminist statements. Um, Jean Feltzer, who's written about this novella, says, where progressive utopians uh, foresaw the possibility of humane technology and described the benefits of clean urban transportation, of dishwashers and birth control, Dodd predicted only nihilism and decay. So it's a depressing text, but I think it's a useful one as, a, as, a, as quite an early vision of full automation. It answers the question of scarcity, uh, but then it it throws up something that actually is even more important than if we could just overcome scarcity and release ourselves into a post-scarcity utopia. And that is this question. How is work entangled in the social construction of value and of self-worth? As Kathy Weeks writes in her excellent 2011 study, The Problem with Work, Um, She says, work is the primary means by which individuals are integrated, not only into the economic system, but also into social, political and familial modes of cooperation. Um, And then she goes on to say, work produces not just economic goods and services, but also social and political subjects. Um, So, okay how can we think with science fiction? Well, if we turn to another work, I think it deals really well precisely with this idea of interpolating subjects through the mechanism of work. Um, Kurt Vonnegut's uniringly prescient 1952 novel, Play a Piano. In this near future dystopia then, machines have replaced vast swathes of production. They've wiped out skilled, they've wiped out unskilled jobs. And the only people who remain in paid employment are the engineers at the top of the tree, um, who, who have to kind of um, oversee them and protect an ever shrinking realm of employment and prosperity. They keep inventing new machines to do their jobs, so throughout the novel, more people become unemployed because they've suddenly created another gadget that could replace them. So, this uh, book was written while Vonnegut was working at General Electric headquarters uh, in upstate New York and extrapolates the possibilities of data tape automation technology trialled in the 1950s to automate milling work, and thinks about the impact that this might have in terms of what we euphemistically call technological displacement, uh, when the machines will take our jobs. The economy is is nearly fully mechanised, not every job has been automated, some jobs are just so boring and and menial that they're not even worth investing in automating. Uh, And also the society is kind of, the whole economy is run by a supercomputer, Epicac, modelled on ENIAC, um, there's a lot of kind of cybernetics being discussed, Norbert Wiener gets quite a mention, um, and, but it's a kind of punch card um, technology based on vacuum tubes, so it's weirdly materialistic um, rather than perhaps more recent AI visions of the future. So the protagonist then, Dr Paul Proteus, a distinguished young career engineer overseeing the works in upstate New York, um, it's a thinly veiled satirisation of this world of General Electric that Vonnegut um, was working in. I think this early quotation about the Ilium Works is, is interesting. Here in the basin of the Riverbend, the Mohawks had overpowered the Elonquins, the Dutch, the Mohawks, the British, the Dutch, the Americans, the British. Now over bones and rotten palings and cannonballs and arrowheads, there lay a triangle of steel and masonry buildings a half mile on each side, the Ilium Works. Where men had once howled and hacked at one another and fought nip and tuck with nature as well, the machines hummed and whirred and clicked and made parts for baby carriages and bottle caps, motorcycles, refrigerators, television sets and tricycles, the fruits of peace." So uh, it's it's kind of strange descriptive passage. It reminds us of the significance of this site of um, 17th century Iroquois wars, of the subsequent colonial wars between Dutch and British settlers and, of course, the American Civil War. So I think Vonnegut uses this location to convey this brutal sense of ongoing historical struggle and also that queasy aftermath of peace. The machines have revolutionized the workplace. machines we are told were doing America's work far better than Americans had ever done it. There were better goods for more people at less cost and who could deny that that was magnificent and gratifying. So what Heather Hicks calls this automation-induced class warfare Um, That was going on. Uh, She does a really nice reading of Vonnegut's work at General Electric during the time of writing this novel. It's a time when um, post Taylorist management practices are being developed through public relations and so on. And it's evident in Vonnegut's novel with the anti sabotage laws um, because there's a new wave of Ludditism of destroying the machines. In Vonnegut's near future world, a tax on the machines pays for full state employment. So this is the really interesting thing. Everyone does have a job. Um, if, if you can't work as an engineer, which very few people can, you're allowed to work in the reeks and wrecks, um, tinkering, fixing up the road, laying um, sewage pipes and, and so on. The standard of living at the same time has also been raised through the increased efficiency that full automation delivers. So. Nobody starves. To some extent, you could suggest this is a post-scarcity society. It has a relative amount of economic stability underpinned by consumption. Not explained. Um, But it remains rigidly hierarchical. I think the genius of it is really that Vonnegut chose to focus on the social and cultural aspects of this engineer class, this privileged class of the capitalist elite. They have private education. They have country club membership, lavish houses. It's not even a meritocracy. This is a full on corpocracy, has mandatory corporate behaviours and um, retreats <laughs> um, for work, uh, modelled on kind of clubhouse culture. So, meanwhile, Paul Proteus fantasises about manual labour, uh, somewhere he thinks there was a place for man, a man and his wife, to live heartily, blamelessly, naturally, by their hands and wits. And so he spends most of the novel trying to get sacked. Um, from this very prestigious position uh, and then starts kind of slumming it with the reeks and wrecks and the former workers who have been technologically displaced from the Ilium works um, before finally joining a brief revolutionary movement that ends up being a bit like the Paris Commune. Um, but finally he realises uh, through hanging out with, um, with these people that they've been traded out of what was most important to them, the feeling of being needed and useful, the foundations of self-respect. So it isn't enough then to have a higher standard of living. The ultrasonic dishwashers, the clockwork radar cookers, the thermostatically controlled windows and the electrostatic dust precipitators are not enough to actually replace people's sense of self-worth. As one bewildered woman puts it when her washing machine breaks down, it's a relief. A body needs a change, I don't mind, give me something to do. Vonnegut's near future um, hasn't found any way to replace that self-worth that we associate um, with working them. Okay. So here then, we're at the heart of the problem in Marx's discourses of work and labour. If we think about work only as something that we do in the realm of necessity, uh, whether it's waged or unwaged, once we take this kind of work out of the equation, what are we actually left with? I think it's no surprise, given what's going on right now, precarity, austerity, capitalist crisis, that academic discussions about the politics of work and these various anti- and post-work theories have become popular. So uh, in the 2015 study of anti-work politics, the refusal of work, the sociologist David Frayne refers to the Italian autonomist movement of the 60s and 70s. Um, He says that these autonomists insisted on the right of workers to (coughs) feel the sun on their skin, to play with their children, to develop interests and skills outside the factory and to rest peacefully at night. So it's an old argument, then, stretching back to the labour reform laws of the 19th century and the political struggle over the length of the working day. As Marx describes in the first volume of Das Kapital, since the capitalist has already paid for the productive infrastructure and the machinery, the so-called constant capital, the extraction of surplus value depends on keeping the length of the working day as long as possible. And this battle over the length of the working day becomes metonymic for the entire class struggle as he writes towards the end of um, Volume 3. The realm of freedom really only begins where labour, determined by necessity and external expediency, ends. It lies, by its very nature, beyond the sphere of material production proper. The true realm of freedom, the development of human powers as an end in itself, begins beyond it, though it can only flourish with the realm of necessity as its basis. The reduction of the working day is its basic uh, requisite prerequisite, sorry. So um, a number of kind of Marxist social theorists um, build on this idea about um, uh, the reduction of the length of the working day, Uh, particularly the Frankfurt school thinkers, Adorno and Horkheimer, Herbert Marcuse, who I'll come back to in a moment, and other thinkers influenced by their ideas, particularly Andre Gortz, They all grounded their emancipatory politics in an idea of the liberation of time, so the reduction of the hours spent working would therefore release an expansion of free time. This would give workers more time, more energy to think about self-development, whatever that might involve, uh, political education, study, aesthetic appreciation, or practice, time spent with the family, time spent doing absolutely sweet things. As David Frayne reminds us, These critiques of work have provoked their readers by highlighting the casualties of a work-centered society, the time for politics, contemplation, conviviality and spontaneous enjoyment, which have been displaced by capitalism's narrow focus on commercial production and consumption. For today's students (coughs) who find themselves pushed through an education system, focused largely on socializing the young for a future job role, to read these critiques is to receive an education in desire, and a reminder that time could be spent differently. I want to think for a moment on this education of desire. Although the critique of work is usually thought of as finding its natural home in the Marxist tradition, actually there are many anti-work arguments which predate Marx's writings. Um, In the early uh, Utopian vision, for example, of Thomas More, or in the works of Charles Fourier, or um, contemporaneously with Marx, or a little bit later, William Morris's writings. In his um, 1884 essay, um, Useful Work Versus Useless Toil, William Morris asserted that the socialist revolution of modern life must proceed on the basis of work, as he calls it, undertaken willingly and cheerfully with the consciousness of benefiting ourselves and our neighbours by it. Such absolutely necessary work as we should have to do would in the first place, he says, take up but a small part of each day, and so it wouldn't be burdensome all labour, even the communist, must be made attractive. So, how can this be done? Um, well, firstly, to make labour attractive, you have to direct it towards an obviously useful end. We have to feel motivated. This is Ursula Le Guin's needed useful work. It, it's not just brute toil. Secondly, the length of the working day is kept short um, to help the worker endure the torment of work, and that's uh, achieved through increased efficiency. And their next, work must offer a variety to avoid the prison torment of repetitive tasks. So William Morris, as, as I'm sure you know then, had in mind a kind of revival of traditional artisanal craftsmaking making and of um, continuous um, education of skilled labour, which he thinks has, has been killed off by commercialism. I think what's interesting about his privileging of, of craft is, um, is the sort of the experience of craft for him. It, 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 it's impossible, he says, to differentiate between what he calls the utilitarian side of the work, the, the thing that you're doing that's useful and needed, and the ornamental side, which has to do with aesthetic appreciation. That is to say that the requisite toil involved in craft bleeds into a kind of creative Bergsonian flow or durée the absorbed concentration in which workers forget that they're actually working. And in different um, discussions of the sociology of work, this idea of Bergsonian kind of flow comes up again and again, meaningful, creative labour is labour where you're not watching the clock, it's where you sort of forget what you're doing. So here then, William Morris arrives at the idea of pleasurable labour, which he derives from the French utopian socialist Charles Fourier, who writes about attraction industrielle, but also um, derived from John Ruskin's ideas on architecture. Um, and this brings us to um, soon. <laughs> we'll come back to them in a minute. This brings us to Herbert Marcuse, who I've mentioned a few times already. Um, he picks up this question of pleasurable labour, um, and it's central to this discussion. What will we do with our free time in the automated productive futures that science fiction is imagining for us? Um, in uh, Eros and Civilization, then Marcuse suggests to move beyond the repressive order of capitalism we need to achieve three primary objectives. Firstly, the transformation of labor into play, a transformation that must proceed by the conquest of want or scarcity. He tends to call, uh, refer to it uh, as ananka, the kind of classical um, Greek deity of, of necessity. Um, secondly then, as I'm just about to come on to, a reconciliation between sensuousness and, and reason, which he derives from Friedrich Schiller. And thirdly, finally, the conquest of time, insofar as time is destructive of lasting gratification. So the play impulse requires some brief uh, comment. In the letters on the aesthetic education of man from 1794, Friedrich Schiller argued that humans, like other animals, have a basic play impulse. He calls it the instinct of play. And that this can be observed, (laughs) as delightfully illustrated by silly Victorians, in the non-utilitarian exercise of cognitive and physical faculties where there is clearly a surplus of energy is happening here. So human play, as one aesthetic scholar puts it, falls somewhere between our purely sensuous human nature and also our formal or purely rational nature. So that's the, the tension between sensuousness and reason. The highest form of play is, of course, aesthetic appreciation and aesthetic practice. Schiller conceives of this play instinct as a spontaneous activity. Uh, it's, it's interesting that he drives an instinctual theory of human nature here, which is really relevant to the Freudian work that Herbert Marcuse does, that we have this kind of excess energy that needs some kind of outflow, um, and it, it's, not, it's not being used to meet external demands, it's not being instrumentalized. it's not being um, motivated by societal restraints or any form of repression. It's therefore entirely opposed to our idea of work uh, in its its sense of being non-utilitarian, an end in itself performed purely for itself. So although Schiller's idea of the play impulse uh, is not unproblematic, as aesthetic uh, uh, scholars will tell you, um, Marcuse says it offers us a vital instinctual recourse to this basic human need to act spontaneously with creativity for no particular purpose um, and it also gives us a utopian glimpse of what life could be like if, we were f- if the realm of necessity were taken out of the equation and humanity finally made it into this um, uh, sunny uplands of post-scarcity or abundance. So it's important to this, this consideration, how would we spend our free time in the automated um, future? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll skip a little because I, I need to get back to the science fiction here really, but um, automation is is one of the things that Herbert Marcuse thinks would release us from the alienated sphere of robotized existence uh, and would abolish the temporal distinction between alienated labour and um, free time. In these conditions of abundance, then, work might become liberated into play in the Schillerian sense, uh, as he writes, the force of the instinctual energy released by mechanised labour would no longer have to be expended on unpleasurable activity and could be changed back into erotic energy. Erotic from eros. The release of this powerful instinctual energy is a crucial utopian resource and he insists on it throughout his later writings. He comes back to it in an essay on liberation in the late 60s when he talks about um, the realm of freedom and the realm of labour uh, and again in the aesthetic dimension at the end of his life. So this idea of labour as play, it's, it's quite abstract um, I'd like to return to a sci-fi illustration of what that might look like. Uh, and I'm going to just briefly describe Mary Bradley Lane's hollow earth, um, pathogenetic, feminist, separatist utopia, Mizora ticks lots of boxes. Um, it, it's a, it's a kind of classical utopia, balmy, italianate landscapes and so on. Um, but I think the interesting thing for our purposes is its treatment of um, labour. Sophisticated mechanisation has done away with um, the drudgery. Science had been the magician that had done away with all that, Um, reaffirming what Jameson calls in Archaeologies of the future, uh, the inseparability of this idea of utopia and of scarcity. Mizora, then we can say is a post-scarcity utopia. Um, They chemically produce food, synthetically, out of valueless elements, uh, bread manufactured out of limestone, for example, and the refuse of the marble quarries, yum, Um, and there's no more poverty and disease. So we're liberated in Mazzorra from the realm of necessity and into the realm of freedom. But what's interesting here is that people don't give up work, they actually want to do work and they do lots of it. Every citizen, no matter how wealthy, they still have wealth, had some regular trade, business or profession. Um, as, as, the, as Vera, the narrator, describes, the dignity and necessity of labour was early, uh, eagerly sorry, and diligently impressed upon the mind. Missouri is a land of, interst- uh, of industry, it has taught us the duty of work. And there's one particular scene um, which really illustrates this, where um, Vera visits the country house of a very famous um, magazine editor uh, and is astonished when the cooks and the servants come out um, to the formal dining room and participate in discussion. And, and she's kind of horrified, like, why are they not b- below stairs? Only to be told that the cook is the country's most famous chemist, herself a woman of vast wealth, um, because she somehow patented making limestone into bread. Um, but nevertheless, she chooses to work. They all choose to work. They don't have the word for servant. Um, their occupations were always a matter of choice. So, those positions that the late 19th century um, reader would uh, regard as menial were filled by ladies of the highest culture and refinement. So in the automated science fiction future, the problem is not always how to survive dwindling job prospects and economic competition, but what do we do with ourselves when the ensuing unemployment comes around and how should we spend all this free time? This is actually a problem that John Maynard Keynes considered in a short text, uh, I thought this was appropriate given that we're in one of these houses, is, is his old house. Uh, in, in a letter on the economic possibilities of our grandchildren, um, he kind of pessimistically says, um, although he thinks the permanent problem, um, the economic problem of scarcity would be solved in the future, in a hundred years' time, uh, that actually the, the bigger problem was how would we use this freedom, uh, how would we occupy our leisure, and he goes on to say that the outlook, judging from the upper classes and how they spend their time, is actually very depressing. We don't know how to spend our free time, if we were liberated in a, in a kind of um, productive Uh, revolution of productive and economic relations, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. I think it's interesting that actually very few more contemporary um, texts beyond the late 19th century even bother to think about this. So I went looking in Consider Flabus, the first culture novel by Ian Banks, for that, you know, glorious kind of description of what living in the culture would be like. And all I found was one sentence about how a, a fully automated AI uh, future would leave humans free to take care of the things that really mattered. Sport, games, romance, studying dead languages, climbing high mountains, and that was it. The rest of the novel and the series is, is much more interested in massive um, spaceships uh, and, and so on. No, no pr- I don't have a problem with that, that's fine, but it didn't answer my question. In a recent book called Free Time, the political theorist Julie Rose intervenes into um, contemporary liberal egalitarian theories of justice through time-use studies and time-use data. Um, It's a mechanistic, uh, difficult book to read in some senses, but I I think she says something really radical in it, and that is this question that Anna Bowman Dodd showed us in The Republic of the Future. If, If we had more free time, we would squander it. Actually, Rose says, uh, quote, it cannot be assumed that people would use their free time as they presently do, if they had their fair share under just conditions. And this, this idea of just conditions is really significant. What she means is that we only go home and binge watch Netflix shows in our free time, which is not a productive or creative or fulfilling social activity. Because we're so exhausted by capitalism, because we're geographically remote from our friends and family who are also exhausted by capitalism, these aren't just conditions. And so we can't just assume uh, that we would waste our time, which comes up again and again, this kind of morally conservative judgment that if you give working people more free time, they don't know how to spend it, unless it's in the consumer, um, patterns of the culture industry, going back to the mid-20th century. Okay, a couple more uh, sci-fi examples before I try and finish on time. If we want to undertake a proper thought experiment about the use of free time, then we have to think of a proper, properly post-capitalist society. One recent popular text, which I think for all its flaws, has actually seriously engaged with this question, is Cory Doctorow's 2017 novel, <coughs> um, Walk Away. Um, it's obviously a novel of its times, it's obviously uh, at the moment of uh, discussions about universal basic income, post-scarcity utopias, these kind of techno-visions of 3D printing um, and how this is going to automate our future. Um, uh, uh, you know, like Aaron Bastani's uh, provocatively titled Fully Automated Luxury Communism, this is a time when the foundations are cohering for a society beyond scarcity and beyond work. It's actually one of a small caucus, I guess, of these sort of 3D printing novels, um, which uh, in, in the near future vision, the unemployed globe and lumpen proletariat has been displaced by technology, uh, what uh, Aaron Bastani calls the unnecessariat. Um, and they've decided that actually they've got less to lose if they just walk away from capitalism uh, and they drift off into the Canadian tundra and do things for themselves. My, I have several problems with the novel. I think my main problem is that it assumes that everybody's going to have the requisite coding and hacking skills to be able um, to constantly tweak and modify all of these complicated software problems that they share on their walkaway net. Um, We have wet printers to produce medicines and food um, and so on, and a a terrifying vision of, of the gig economy, the workers of today, the young people of today. Um, reaching their 60s and 70s with no money set aside, no pensions literally nothing and eking out a very harsh existence indeed I want to, don't laugh at me the thing that I think that is actually the most radical and interesting about this novel is the naked bathing (laughs) it's possibly not the thing that other people have focused on as much, it's the prevalence of Japanese onsen in all of these um, communities uh, in Canada, the proliferation of sexual relationships and sensuality they're not always sexual And it's important because I think amongst the irritating narrative style of the novel and the really adolescent fiction that all the characters share uniformly, um, this is quite a a Marcusean gesture, I think, in the same way that contemporary post-work theorists are going back to Herbert Marcuse's mid-20th century writings. And it comes back to that education of desire, the liberation of desire. How do we desire something different and what would that look like? Okay, so just to look at a quick couple of passages. The bathing is described as uh, feeling childlike from before sex, or maybe someone very old, beyond sex. It's described as an animal pleasure, a sweet, tazzy decadence, childlike with its implications of futurity, some kind of reconfigured humanity, a sensuality liberated from the function of sex, which was Marcuse's key point in eros and civilization, that we unleash the civilization of building creative powers of eros out of um, a de-sublimated, repressive sexuality in, the, in, in capitalism. And that animal pleasure of casting off the shackles and drifting off into new kinds of collective encounter. This brings me back then to finish really with <laughs> Ursula Le Guin's The Delight <laughs> of the Nursing Mother. As you might recall, she said, um, oh, sorry, um, there we go. no. I haven't got it, sorry, I thought I had it. She said useless work uh, darkens the heart. Uh, You might recall she said the delight of the nursing mother of the scholar, of the successful hunter, of the good cook, the skillful maker, of anyone doing needed work and doing it well. This is a durable joy. Of course, um, you'll notice that this is a kind of reworking of Marx and Engels passage from the German ideology where famously they talk about um, what would happen after alienating labor had been abolished that we wouldn't have to be specialised in our jobs, that it would be, you will recognise this as I read it, it would be possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, to fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticise after dinner, just as I have a mind, without having to become a hunter, a fisherman, a herdsman, or a critic. So, The Nursing Mother, it really struck me as I was kind of preparing this talk, I I mean, I have to say, I think she romanticises the delight of the nursing mother, somewhat, given recent personal experience, Um, (laughs) but there have nonetheless been a number of science fiction texts, particularly dystopian and post-apocalyptic texts, that are interested in questions of motherhood, reproductive futures, um, demo dystopias, um, the inability perhaps to, to have children. Um, with sort of perhaps more literary less sci-fi genre examples like Megan Hunter's The End We Start From uh, and um, The Birth of Love by Jana Kavenner where either pregnant women or laboring women or women with very young newborn babies are, are the protagonists of these stories and obviously we need to note the importance of the, the Hulu adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. So these texts use the genre of science fiction to think through increasingly politicised debates about women's right to choose, about their own reproductive futures and their own bodies. They often use the eerie experience of pregnancy to challenge normative and masculinist philosophical traditions which privilege male subjectivity above women's experience, which is, which is actually, when you think about it, frequently and throughout history, intersubjective because many of these women spent so much of their lives being pregnant. Pregnancy, as Parley Ann Boswell puts it, is science fiction. It's the idea that you have your own body and all of a sudden you're sharing it with an alien. Um, The Birth of Love by Joanna Cavenna has a section in it about a society called the genetics. It's a a classical uh, Huxley-esque Orwellian dystopian future in, in amongst a novel that is a bit more like David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas that has various different narrative strands and different genres, not just science fiction within it. Um, but I think it's useful because it reminds us about this division between kind of the animal um, human experience of, of labour and pregnancy and then these um, fully automated extra human me- mechanisms of reproduction. Labour, as Ursula Hughes reminds us, refers, of course, the word both to work and to the process of bringing a child into the world, conveying a, a simul- simultaneous sense of creativity and pain. Um, and of course, we should note that the etymology of proletariat derived from the Latin proletarius means a citizen who holds no property and whose only contribution to the state is their own offspring. So I'm just going to wrap up then with um, Joanna cavena 's uh, The Birth of Love. Um, it's a section that I, I, I included in um, my book that I've written about. Um, I think for me, the most interesting thing is that the... Um, A band of political dissidents leave the genetics and actually go off to the stunningly utopian islands in the Arctic of Lough Fulton, um, where they, they insist on going back to the bloody process of giving birth and raising children themselves. Um, it, it gives us a kind of forceful feminist critique of capitalist temporality, which would assume that automation would, therefore, in a very sterile way, automate child rearing and it would just raise that, it would solve that problem who brings up the children. Um, and it kind of returns us to questions of rational masculinist subjectivity. So, uh, science fiction then here um, demonstrates the power of the literary imagination, I think, and its ability to con- contribute to gaps. In the scholarly literature about labour and the meaning of work, Ruth Levitas says in The Concept of Utopia that it's significant that people like Herbert Marcuse, Ernst Bloch, William Morris, the, these kind of great men of the utopian tradition use the generic male throughout their writing, um, for despite the centrality of the transformation of labour in these images of the good society, despite their avowed feminism, there's virtually no mention of domestic labour or childcare in any of their works. The role of automation in the home is not discussed at all. <coughs> Feminist thinking needs to be front and centre in any reconceptualisation of production and of work, and particularly when we think about work combined with ecological claims about sustainability, we know that when we work more, when the economy produces more, we consume more, we waste more, the, the, the whole um, system heats up and it's, it's really bad for the environment. Feminist economics have insisted econ, econ, economists sorry have insisted on the problematic division of labor and also that correlation between long working hours and environmental pressures. moving from marx 's realm of necessity into the realm of freedom requires more than just as I hope these texts and this discussion have shown you it 's not just enough to automate the work and it 's also actually not just enough to give us more free time. Um, as these texts um, kind of trace through this problem, it's, it's central to transform what we understand by work. It's, it, we need to stretch the boundaries of things like wage labor, domestic labor, reproductive labor, and so on. And I think science fiction, and it's really interesting that anti-productivist theorists are, are, are liberally referring to science fiction in their arguments. It's one of the most powerful tools that we have at our disposal today to think about critiquing redundant uh, capitalist ideological frameworks to do with money, productivity, economic growth, and to uh, give us a vision of the estranging perspectives of reconceived social worlds. Thank Thank you.